Welcome to Exit Capitalism Stage Left. I am Amanda Riggle, and this podcast is brought to you by the Maggie Fair Institute for Democracy and Human Rights. The primary purpose of the Maggie Fair Institute for Democracy and Human Rights is to educate people, especially young people, about democracy and human rights. This purpose will be achieved through, but not limited to, such practices as hiring an educator, sponsoring projects, sponsoring forums and workshops, showing educational films, operating a library, developing educational materials, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Because we here at the Maggie Fair Institute have recently lost our founder and namesake, Maggie Fair, one year and one day after our former educator and comrade, Mimi Saltisic, passed, I think this would be a good time to talk about grief and mourning in a capitalist world. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the most English major source to cite, I know this, uh, mourning is 3A, to feel or express sorrow or grief, 4A, to lament or grieve over a death, and 4B, to lament, grieve, or sorrow for someone who's dead or someone's death, uh, to express grief for. Going further into the Oxford English Dictionary's definition, they also note a connection between mourning, the appearance of mourning or putting on like airs of performance, wearing black, um, and a time for mourning. In later definitions of the word, um, 3C notes mourning as, quote, to exhibit the conventional signs of grief for a period following the death of a person. And 3E continues this idea of a time-specific period for mourning uh, when its definition is to pass time in mourning. Since there is this appearance of a specific time frame as part of the commonly understood definitions for mourning, I kind of wanted to use this time and space that we're in right now to explore some questions about this connection. So what is the appropriate amount of time for mourning? Is, is there one? Do we have it defined? And do we, as subjects under a capitalist system, have the space and time necessary for mourning? I would kind of argue that within our current economic system, grieving is limited to how much time we're able to take off from work. Uh, we have bereavement leave, vacation time, and unpaid time we're able to take off if our work allows us to take unpaid time off and if we as workers can afford to not work for a period of time. But beyond those very specific measures, there's little to no way to support ourselves if our period of grieving extends past those time allowances created within the work for pay and the pay to live system that we currently occupy that is called capitalism. And a lot of those guarantees I just mentioned come with traditional workspaces, with full-time work. If you are a part-time worker or you have a non-traditional workspace, um, that would be somebody who's like self-employed. If you are part of kind of like a startup without like any kind of guarantees yet, um, or even without an HR department to kind of ensure that your workplace is meeting those legal standards set forth for time off. Or like me in academia, I'm a of going into my fourth year of graduate school, I am both a worker and a student on some level. So where where does that, how does that workspace work, right? So sometimes these kinds of positions don't have the same access to time off, uh, to the same resources. And if they are there, we're not really told when we're able to use them and when we're still expected to work. 
Um, additionally, a lot of shift workplaces like Starbucks require workers to find their own coverage for sick time or family leave, which puts an extra burden or barrier on workers who are already vulnerable uh, due to illness or loss. This is... I think a very unfair system, but one that Starbucks, I know because I know multiple people who work there, practice at every single one of their locations in the US. Management is not responsible for finding coverage. If you are sick, you as the worker are putting a burden on your fellow workers by leaving them short for a shift. And Starbucks is already notorious for having little coverage to no coverage. Um, so when a worker is missing, it is terrible for their co-workers just how busy they are and how demanding the customers are. Using myself as an example here, I personally lost a lot of people in 2020 and 2021, and none of which were directly related to COVID-19, which was kind of weird, but I'll go into a few more details. Um, in the summer of 2020, my longtime, you know, friend, fellow organizer, comrade, and the past educator for the Maggie Fair Institute, Mimi Soltisic, passed from cancer. Uh, shortly after that, my paternal grandfather passed away um, in kind of late summer, early fall. After that, one of my uh, fellow organizers on campus ended up passing unexpectedly. Um, we were all pretty shocked by it. And then this April, my maternal grandmother passed away after battling cancer for a handful of months. So after all of those losses, how am I, how much bereavement time am I allowed to take? How do we in a capitalist system plan for so much loss? Additionally, as an academic worker, it was never made clear to me who to contact in the case of something like this if a direct family member dies, right? I didn't necessarily expect time off for um, a friend's death, um, but I was hoping to take some time off for my grandmother's passing. And because we were approaching finals, because I didn't know who to contact in the department that I work for, I was never able to take that time or take that break, uh, which impacted my mental wellness. It really did. And, you know, I do have a union and a one that organizes regularly and tries to address these issues. And since the um, the measures have been put in place to address COVID-19 in academia, they have been on the front line of trying to push for more of these assurance, more time off and things of that nature. Um, and I have support from the department that I research in and I'm getting my degree in. And my committee for my dissertation were very supportive and giving me more time and more space. But none of this transferred into the separate department that I teach for. I had no idea who to contact to have my classes covered, nor how much I had to do to catch up whoever would take over those classes. Um, we don't really have a direct supervisor. The classes are run pretty independently. I have a set of standards I have to meet depending on like what class that I'm teaching. But there's there's really no, here's my lesson plans, here's what we're doing. You've already read all this stuff, you know what I'm teaching. There is, again, like a book pool, but many people don't pull and teach the same text or even teach from that pool. Um, so if I was to take any sort of leave at that period, I would be letting these students down and putting setting them up for somebody who wasn't aware of what we were kind of like doing in class because we don't have any kind of system in place where I'm teaching. 
And one thing I also want to note is that I am very lucky in that my committee members were understanding and let me work on my dissertation at my own pace when I was able to, and let me push my testing back for my ABD or all but dissertation stage, um, which is all that's left is writing the dissertation. Um, they let me push that back until the fall. But this hasn't been the case. Talking to other graduate students across the UCs, which is where I'm at, and even having conversations nationwide with other people who work in um graduate programs and who are graduate students, we're kind of at the whims of the people who supervise us and whoever happens to be chair of the department at that time. And sometimes, like me, you get somebody who's sympathetic and sometimes you don't. And they tell you to push through and that you have to deal with it because you always have to deal with these things. Even though faculty can take an entire year off, um, we're told that we have to focus and we have to push through it and kind of that bootstrapper mentality, um, which is really unhealthy and really unfair. Uh, something like this shouldn't depend on the kindness of those in supervisory positions because then that makes grieving and bereavement time and this time we're supposed to get off, not a guarantee, but a gamble. And while nobody that I lost was directly lost to COVID, um, it still impacted my ability to grieve and to mourn and to come together with a shared community that also loved and lost these people. Um, there were no funerals to physically attend, save for my grandmother's the, more recently in April, but my sister and I live in Southern California and she passed up in Oregon. We weren't able to make it up to a 6 a.m. service a few days after she passed. We couldn't afford the time off to drive up. We couldn't afford the last minute flights. And because um, my sister is an essential worker, her vaccine was way lower on the list of priorities um, than my own. I was able to get mine pretty early because of my status as an educator. Um, but my sister, who lives in L.A. County and works uh, a service position, wasn't able to get vaccinated yet. She was on a waiting list. It wasn't open. Um, so we couldn't fly up there safely and we couldn't drive up there because of time. So we had no ability uh, to kind of do the the rituals of mourning that we have established in our community. Right. I couldn't go to a funeral. She couldn't go to a funeral. Um, there was probably the most depressing thing I've ever seen before, a Catholic service for our friend um, in academia who passed unexpectedly. But it was a webcam in the back of a Catholic service where all you got was this cavernous, cavernous echo and you could see a few people attending and sitting pretty far apart in masks, but you couldn't really hear or understand the service. You couldn't really see um, what was going on. We were able to chat somewhat it was a Facebook live stream with some other people who are watching, but I, I honestly cannot say that attending that virtual service offered any kind of closure um, for that loss either. And really, I'm using myself as an example because I'm able to kind of like articulate my own struggles with this, but I am very much not alone in facing an immense amount of loss during 2020 and 2021. I am just one of many who have faced the limitations to mourning and grieving under capitalism, which has been further exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths 
um, from COVID and now the new Delta variant are spiking in the U.S. as I'm kind of reciting. I, I wrote this. It's also a blog post on the Maggie Fair um, website, but I am obviously elaborating and expanding here on the podcast. But as you know, I'm, I'm reading this script, the U.S. alone has had three, sorry, 34.9 million cases uh, and 612,000 deaths. And these sources are from the New York Times, Our World Data, and Wikipedia. Um, and they were found, um, this is as of like late July. And those most affected by COVID are the workers. As noted in the World Socialist website, um, WSWS.org, this fundamental socioeconomic contradiction, i.e. the irreconcilable conflict between the capitalist class and the working class, finds its most obscene expression in the correlation between the number dead, unemployed, and impoverished, and, on the other side of the ledger, the explosive rise of wealth within Wall Street and within the elite in the U.S., since the passage of this multi-trillion dollar bailout in late March, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has risen approximately 35%. The NASDAQ index in 2020 had its high during the first 10 days of May. While the number of dead rose approximately by 15,000, the Dow Jones went up more than 600 points. The more terrible the reports of death and human suffering are during the COVID-19 pandemic, the more ecstatic the response from the capitalist markets. This contrast between Wall Street and Main Street is so extreme that it is now being commented on widely by multiple financial presses, not just by sources on the left. To kind of simplify what they're saying, the workers are the ones at risk and being asked to shoulder the risk posed by COVID-19 to keep the economy, Wall Street, and the wealthy elite in the U.S. afloat while we drown in our fears and sorrows. This creates a perpetual state of danger and a perpetual state of loss, in addition to the alienation the standard U.S. worker feels from being perpetually exploited at work. So according to a recent article, Morning Work, Death and Democracy During a Pandemic, recently published in Contemporary Political Theory um, by David McIver, Juliet Hooker, Ashley Adkins, and more, um, this pandemic is not just further alienating and exploiting workers, but it's also targeting communities of color uh, and especially black people in the US who have already been placed in a perpetual state of mourning just by the structure of the United States and the United States government. And what comes next is a direct quote from this article. The differential vulnerability to death and mourning during the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed enduring racial and class divides in the USA and clarified the impact of spreading inequality. For Hooker in particular, the pandemic has clarified patterns of racialized precarity to which political theorists and social actors have not adequately responded. Disavowed precarity also calls into question the supposedly recent phenomenon of, quote, Demo democracy grief, end quote, in the global north, or what Hooker refers to as the civic sadness that arises with the recognition that the USA is a democracy in need of repair. Such recognitions are belated, and like the L of Mirvana, may have come too late. And they allied the experiences of black citizens who have been paying the psychic tax for democracy grief for generations and who are paying a steep price once again during this pandemic, end quote. 
And this article also reaffirms that those without traditional workspaces are more vulnerable to exploitation during this pandemic and have the inability to take time off for grieving. Quote, Hooker and Atkins also take up the relationship between democracy and sacrifice. Democratic theorists such as Danielle Allen and Ann Norton have argued for an inherent link between democracy and sacrifice. Yet both Hooker and Atkins challenge the logic or the value of this link, albeit in different ways. For Hooker, calls for sacrifice often overlook the facts of who is being asked to sacrifice or, more pointedly, who is being sacrificed for democracy. In the context of COVID-19 and this pandemic, the so-called essential worker, many of them, including grocery store workers, nursing assistants, farm workers, and delivery drivers lacking paid sick leave, a living wage, or health benefits are not li- that are not linked to their employment, are in positions to sacrifice to the relatively well-off and protected, end quote. I would personally argue that this above manifestation of capitalism's control over our ability to mourn, to work, and to survive all ties into what Achille Mamembe termed the necropolitical and the state's real source of power not being in granting the means to live, but in its ability to control and deny people access to things that grant life. As Comrade Teen Vogue elaborates in their article, What is Necropolitics? The Political Calculation of Life and Death. Quote, why does COVID-19 impact marginalized communities disproportionately? I think the answer is rooted in necropolitics. Marginalized communities face immense access to barriers to healthcare, education, and opportunities for professional advancement. In his book, Against the Terror of Neoliberalism, Cultural Clinic Henry Gruer lays bare that the most vulnerable people in the United States are considered disposable, unnecessary burdens on state coffers and consigned to fend for themselves. These disparities are exacerbated and compounded through the COVID-19 crisis. Take Dr. Susan Moore's harrowing story. Moore, a physician, made a viral video while undergoing treatment for COVID-19. The video cast a spotlight on the way her white doctor handled her case. She posted that after she complained of pain, the doctor said she felt uncomfortable giving her more narcotics and suggested that she be discharged. I was crushed, Moore said. He made me feel like I was a drug addict. She added, I maintain if I was white, I wouldn't have to go through that, end quote. Just a few weeks later, Moore died of a coronavirus-related complication. At the time, a spokeswoman for the Indiana University Health, the hospital system where Moore was a patient, told the New York Times that privacy laws prevented them from commenting on her specific case, but added that the organization investigates any allegations of discrimination in its commitment to equality and reducing racial disparities in healthcare. Necropolitics render stories like Moore's all too common. Medical biases can be fatal for black women. At its core, Teen Vogue sees necropolitics as a manifestation of capitalism and its related institutions of violence, white supremacy, the prison industrial complex, cis-heteropatriarchy, and colonialism. Capitalism bleeds us all. It quantifies our lives. It predetermines our deaths. In a sinking raft scenario that opened the article that I am sharing right now, they argue that capitalism would choose a CEO's life over yours or mine in every single instance. Capitalism drives necropolitics through 
the scarcity myth. That is, especially during a global pandemic, for example, there are simply insufficient resources for us all, so some of us have to die. But that does not need to be true. If we prioritize redistributing wealth and taking care of each other, there might be enough for everyone. And that is the end of kind of uh, summarizing and quoting that Teen Vote article. Um, but really what it all comes down to is loss, death, and mourning are all a part of life. But within these confines of the capitalist system, we are given limited time off and even more limitations to how much time off we could take in order to grieve, an essential and inescapable part of living. And further, things like capitalism exacerbate the divide between who is suffering these losses, who is being asked to take the risk and to possibly lose their life, and who is profiting and who is living just fine. But as Teen Vogue suggests, when you when we address kind of the root of the state's power, the necropolitical, we could redistribute what our society needs in order to live and ensure that all of us have core rights. The right to life, the right to housing, the right to food, the right to clean water, the right to health care, and the right to mourn among a whole list of others. What it really comes down to is whatever world we build after capitalism, we have to keep in mind that humans are social creatures, and when our network of friends, family, and community experiences a loss, we all need time to process. A day off or a week off from labor may not be enough. A lifetime may not be enough, but forcing people to perform work in exchange for money, which is the mode of being able to survive under capitalism, must not continue if we are to take people's mental health and ability to mourn and grieve seriously and as an inalienable human right. One way of addressing this pitfall now is to advocate for a universal basic income where everyone's needs are met without having to work in order to survive. I guess a side tangent to that would be um, eliminating landlords uh, and making all housing free, but that might be a little too extreme for right now, even though that's something that we desperately need instead of these rent moratoriums and delays on paying we need to just never have to pay rent and all be granted housing but with a system like universal basic income in place people aren't faced with this form of double alienation the first being alienated from the fruits of their labor um, in a capitalist exploitative system and the second is being alienated from themselves and their feelings of grief and loss during a period of mourning because they'd have the means to take care of themselves and to take as much time off as they need um, to process their emotions and to feel connected with themselves once again, with their kinship networks, with their friends, and with their communities. As I mentioned in the opening of this podcast, um, we at the Maggie Fair Institute recently lost Maggie Fair, um, one of my coworkers and comrades that also is part of the Maggie Fair Institute, wrote an article. The Life of an Essential Activist, Maggie Fair, 1930 to 2021, that was published in Counterpunch. And I'd like to read a bit of that now, just so people um, get a background on who Maggie was and, and what she did. Maggie Fair passed away on June 29th, 2021, at the age of 91. Maggie was born just before the stock market crash of 1929 and grew up in the shadows of the Great Depression here in Southern California. 
She was very active in high school in challenging the racism that she saw around her from Chicano students being enrolled in agriculture or home economics majors without any consent, um, from teachers who are making comments about the Japanese shortly after their release from relocation camps. Soon after enrolling at UCLA, she joined the Congress on Racial Equality, helped desegregate Bullock's team room and uh, Bamimi Baths, a popular swimming pool. Her anti-racist work convinced her of the need for full employment and for socialism. In 1967, she became a founding member of the Peace and Freedom Party of California and provided a valuable alternative for voters who supported civil rights and opposed war. She remained a member for the next 50 years. Nationally, Maggie was active in the Socialist Party U.S. She had first joined the party uh, when it was called the Socialist Party of America in the early 1950s as a college student and remained a member for close to 70 years. Um, In the SPA, she had been a member of the Debs Caucus and was one of the core members who helped form the SPUSA when the old SPA split into three factions in the 1970s. She held several positions within the party, serving at one time as the national co-chair, and she also helped publish uh, the party newspaper when it was in Los Angeles. As a peace activist, her opposition to war began with the dropping of the atom bomb and has included opposing the Korean War, the Vietnam conflict, um, and U.S. intervention in Central America and the Middle East. In August of 1990, Maggie helped organize the first demonstration in Los Angeles opposing a U.S. military presence in the Persian Gulf. She is survived by her daughter, Catherine Goldman, and her granddaughter, Sydney Goldman. And that's the end of what I'm going to read from that article. Again, just wanted to include some information about who she was and why we have this institute. During her memorial service hosted by the institute, the same comrade who wrote the article noted three lessons he learned from Maggie that were an essential part of her activist philosophy and how she related to others. The first was education, and not just in an academic sense, but to be a lifelong learner, to use the Socratic method, which is kind of like questioning and having conversations rather than um, arguing or telling somebody you have all the right answers. It's really kind of more negotiating and coming to a shared understanding through conversation. She believed in always reading and to be engaged with a central question when it came to any kind of problem that arose. Uh, What can we do about this? The second was her generosity in every sense of the word. Maggie was a generous person with her time, with the spaces that she had, and with the things that she owned. One comrade noted that she opened her home up, allowing people to stay over whenever they were in town. Um, Others noted how generous she was with food and how she always made sure her comrades were fed, sheltered, and cared for. The third was her belief in humanity and her own humanity. Maggie was a firm believer in solidarity in people power and accepted people where they were at. She believed in people over politics and was a figure that could talk to anybody and guide them gently, again, using kind of that Socratic method towards sharing her belief in people and community and in that shared humanity. Mamie had a very similar belief. He was always reading. He was always recommending books. He was talking about um, what the latest thing was that he was learning and he was constantly learning and constantly trying to challenge his previously held worldviews and understand 
again, that shared humanity and our place within it and how to also kind of communicate and build those networks of solidarity um, as a way of kind of sharing their both of their passions for reading and for education. There's a few new materials up on the Maggie Fair website, um, including Mimi's activist reading list and Maggie Fair's guide to the feminist process. Some of the essential books that Mimi recommends are The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon, The Assassination of Fred Hampton by Jeffrey Haas, and Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, The Socialist Imperative by Michael Lebowitz. Um, gosh, just looking down this list, there's so many good ones. Thinking Through Essays on Feminism, Marxism, and Anti-Racism by Hamimi uh, Benjiri. I think I'm saying that one right. Uh, October by China Melville, Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Frari, and there's actually links to different places, including PDFs for a lot of these books that he's recommended. Um, I do think that's a great resource if you're looking to run any kind of like independent reading group or to just build up your own knowledge and understanding um, and kind of expanding your worldview if you haven't read all of these books or even some of them. And then Maggie Fair's The Feminist Process um, is, I think, an essential thing for all activists to read as well. And this is something, funny enough, uh, Mimi Saltisic shared with us at a Socialist Party of Los Angeles meeting many years ago, and I still had the document. Um, so I was able to kind of like retype that up and put it up on the Maggie Fair website for other people to access. And I'm going to go ahead and read from that document now, just so we get an idea of what the feminist process is. And these are Maggie's words. Many groups abandoned their gavels during the 60s. In this area of social change, we are confronted with some of the unconscious attitudes in our own decision-making that we learned in early childhood and left us with habits common to our oppression. Feminist process was developed in a small group where people learned to be more considerate, more open, and more fair. The feminist process does not mean that women dominate or exclude men. On the contrary, it challenges all systems of domination, matriarchy, as well as patriarchy. The term recognizes the historical importance of feminist movements in insisting that nonviolence begins at home in the ways that we treat each other. When we say that we use the feminist process, we mean that the relationship within our groups cannot be separated from the accomplishments of our goals. We mean that we value synthesis and cooperation rather than competition, that we value each individual's contribution to the group and encourage the active participation of everybody involved in an action. We cannot separate the meaning of the means of control from the ends that we accomplish. We mean that our organizings are non-hierarchical, that power flows from the united will of the group, not from the authority of any individual. Nevertheless, our groups are not leaderless. Each of us is a leader. The following are some specific ways we can use the feminist process. The first is protecting speaking time by going around a circle and allowing each person to speak for a specifically set amount of time. Thus, we hear the ideas of people who do not necessarily feel comfortable speaking out in a group. Um, and we also kind of limit the highly verbal people who tend to dominate meetings. The next is not interrupting people who are speaking. We can even leave a space after each speaker by counting to five before speaking. This way, people have a chance to kind of like get out any extra thoughts and not interrupting. 
The next is not giving all the answers and solutions. Our ideas are important, but when we wait or draw others out, the discussion can be enriched, right? So it's giving that space for conversation to happen. Another one is becoming a good listener. Another one is if we are going to interrupt, make sure we interrupt only other people's oppressive behaviors. Men can tell women, women can tell women, women can tell men, men can tell other women, right? Um, when a behavior is being oppressive and how to improve it. Um, it is not an act of friendship to allow friends to continue to dominate those around them. And this continues on. We have not speaking on every subject, sharing your skills and knowledge, rotating responsibilities, working together cooperatively, and allowing for space for people to kind of discover who they are and converse with people who make them feel comfortable in whatever space they deem comfortable. So it's kind of like opening up space and not dominating space. And again, that document, the feminist process and Mimi's reading list are on the education tab of our website. They are free to download. They are free to share. And, you know, please do share them. We want our comrades to be remembered and we want their work to be remembered. Um, while we can all fight for time and space to grieve, we can also fight to keep our comrades and their work in the public consciousness. One thing Mimi taught me is that our fight is an intergenerational fight. We may not see results in our lifetime, but the work that we do while we are here isn't about us. It's about our community and those who fight alongside us and who will carry on organizing after we leave. I know that as long as I'm here, I'm going to remember and appreciate and spread the lessons taught to me by my comrades, both past and present, and do my best to share that knowledge with my peers and future activists I engage with on every platform made available to me. So things from this podcast to my work in academia. And I'd really like to close today's podcast before doing the usual sign off with a poem from the book Rebellious Morning uh, to the lights that never went out. And this poem was written by uh, Natasha Weiss. Long after we have gone from this place, after the new stakes plunged into our ground and the structures they call structurally sound and the thievish look of gold in the streets and the wiping clean of mess that was the passion of our lives, I thought I saw the smoke still rising from the fire we made, the one we set alight to burn every item we could not bring with us. In the garden where the winged insects had rippled against my body and green shoots had sprung up overnight, we set ablaze the evidence of our existence, not to destroy, never to destroy, but to return to the sky and earth, our ash that held so many meetings, thrilling out to mourn of the young creator we created, a shrine, a tomb, a sorrow, a celebration. Some fires are so meaningful, they might stay awake beneath the ground where the earth loves them, where nothing has a name, but everything is known. And after many days of rain, thirsty monsoons drowning the basement mushrooms, washing machines bobble like swans, someone swept out to see and never found. I see the smoke rising out of that circle of ash where we seared our love into the ground. You are not coming back. You never left. You never left, did you? Thank you once again for listening to Exit Capitalism, Stage Left. 
My name is Amanda Riggle, and this has been our episode on mourning and capitalism. And I would like to say, once again, this podcast is brought to you by the Maggie Fair Institute, um, and we will continue to carry on Maggie and Mimi's legacy for as long as I'm able to record this and share it with people.